Welcome to Our House, the only complete on-air resource for your home ownership needs. Now, here's the host of Our House, Peter Hunt. Good morning and welcome to Our House. This is Peter Hunt and the show is brought to you by the continuously updated HuntRealEstate.com where everything is truly easier for your real estate and home ownership experience. HuntRealEstate.com is powered by Hunt Real Estate ERA here in Buffalo, Niagara, all across upstate and through our links to Phoenix, Arizona and also Boston, Massachusetts. The show is also brought to you by Hunt Mortgage, NMLS number 37405. Hunt Mortgage is an equal opportunity lender and it can be reached at 633-3700 where you can speak with one of our skilled mortgage consultants to speak with to work with you to find the lowest rate and closing costs for your particular home financing needs and wants and that's our guarantee to you. Also ask about our many exclusive programs including our pre-purchase commitment that allows you at no cost to risk to effectively enter the market to find your next home with cash and as I keep repeating every week it's a highly competitive market out there and it's very difficult to um, <clears throat> I guess meet the demand through the inventory that's currently available so that when you do find the house that you want you want to make sure that your offer is as competitive as possible best way to do that is with all cash but not that many people have all cash so the next best way is through a mortgage commitment not a pre-approval or a pre-qualification but an actual mortgage commitment available only through hunt mortgage at 633-3700 where you're going to receive personalized customized service that will knock your socks off. So call them today, 633-3700. And don't forget about the first ever 24-7, 365 real estate hotline, the Hunt Hotline, which gives you access to all available information about any property that is listed for sale here in Buffalo, Niagara, or any of the markets we serve. The local number is 716-631-4800. Enter the street number of the house you want to know about, no matter whose listing it is. And the hotline will prompt you with this choice of street names. Select the one you want. You'll hear a brief description, and then you'll be texted a link to a dedicated website on that property, all automatically and just that fast, anytime in any market we serve on any listing, no matter whose it is. It doesn't have to be ours. We have a very active market, as I indicated to you before, and it may never be a better time to sell, if you're thinking about it, than right now. Prices are going up. It was reported yesterday that prices in the country had gone up by some 10% over the course of 12 months, which is pretty astounding. If you think about it, we haven't had a price increase like that since, uh, I won't even mention it, the bubble time in the mid part of the, the last decade. Uh, that's not something we want to repeat, and this is different today. This is not a financially driven uh, price escalation. It's a supply-demand price escalation, which is <clears throat> really the only way and the healthiest way for prices to go up for any good or service. But it is a good time to look. It's a good time to sell and it's an opportunity to capitalize on the great market conditions we have, particularly given the fact that interest rates are at historic lows. Hunt is the official real estate and relocation provider. Our hometown professional teams, the Buffalo Bills, the Buffalo Sabres, and the Rochester Americans go build big game tomorrow at 4. We are broadcast live on WBEN 9.30 a.m., also on 98.5 FM HD3, if you have that option. And we'd like if you'd like to participate in today's show, you can reach us here in the studio at 803-0930 or 1-800-616-9236 if you're long distance. And star 930 for mobile. If you want to text us, you can do that too at 803-0930. And those are all free calls, of course. We have a very special show for you today. We're taking a little different look at what we've been talking about week in and week out here, and that is really the impact of of the pandemic on the world around us and, and really its impact on on your investment here in Western New York in real estate. And to help me with that today, we have a very special guest, Kathleen Chaffee, who is the chief curator at the Albright Knox Art Gallery. Good morning, Kathleen. 
Good morning, Peter. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Doing wonderfully. It's clear sky for a brief minute, so I'll take it. <laughs> well, we've got to take those little victories when we can. <clears throat> um, you, you, uh, how did you get to the gallery, Kathleen? Tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. I mean, so I, um, I grew up in the Midwest, and I uh, studied art history in uh, in grad school way too many years, which once I think what happens once you get started, it's hard to stop. Um, and I had visited the Albright Knox when I was an undergrad, when I was going to college in Ithaca. Um, and I before I came here, I was working at the Yale University Art Gallery, which is a great university museum in Connecticut. Um, and the, the curator here at the Albright Knox left, and I ended up making the move out here just to follow the museum. I didn't have any ties in Buffalo, um, but of course that's changed. I've been at the museum for six and a half years. It's absolutely flown by. Um, and started as a curator, and then I've been the chief curator now for several years. What does a curator do? It's a great question. I get asked that all the time. <laughs> um, so curator at its root, the word means caretaker, and that, that's a good indicator. Um, so we are, the, we are the people in the museum who kind of steward the, the, the way that the collection, if, if a museum has a permanent collection, the way that that collection is um, installed, displayed, uh, the exhibitions that take place in the museum. Um, at a museum that builds a permanent collection like ours does, we, we buy art um, on a fairly regular basis. We have an endowment um, of funds that are specifically kind of restricted for the purchase of works of art. Um, so the curators are also the ones who make those recommendations for the works that we think we ought to buy. So that means that we're out there visiting with artists a lot, especially, you know, before this year, I was traveling, you know, a week or two a month just to meet with artists in different parts of the world um, and start building those relationships so that we could bring them back here to Buffalo. And sometimes that meant bringing back actual works of art, and other times it meant inviting artists to come here and meet with our local communities. You know, it, it always strikes me, <clears throat> particularly being one of the most least educated people in art relative that, you know, that's involved with the museum at all. <clears throat> it always amazes me how people with your background and, and skills can look at something and decide that it's good or not good. How do you, when you go about, as you, I know you work very closely with the others at the gallery too, uh, and on the board to make selections for the future of the of the collection. How, how do you, what is, is there is there a kind of an um, intelligence process that goes about in inside the industry where where you find out who's hot and up and coming? How how do you go about seeking these people out, or is it or is it more accidental than that? I mean, it's it's kind of both. Part of the best way to answer that question is actually to go back a second to your first question to me, which is how did I end up in Buffalo? And um, you know, I ended up here. I thought I you know I came here for the job, but to dig down into that a little bit, it's because the Albright Knox has one of the absolute greatest collections of modern and contemporary art, not just in the country but also in the world. And for a museum of our size, the collection is absolutely extraordinary, and it has these it has. Um, sections, sort of areas, historical areas, where the works that we have are the ones that you're going to find in any textbook that any student is going to study about the history of art. So I mention that not just to, you know, brag about how wonderful our collection is. It's kind of a reminder for people um, 
of the resource that we have in Buffalo, and we're, you know, I'll talk more about that later. I'm sure we're dying to reopen and start um, being able to share that with the public again. But where, where we begin as curators, especially at the Albright Knox, is um, we think about what's up and coming. We absolutely are out there, you know, following trends, sometimes resisting trends. We're not, um, we're not as museums, we get to take kind of a longer approach. We're not... Um, we don't need to be, you know, the very, very, very first people to discover someone. It's fun when you, you know, visit a young artist in their studio and you see something just brilliant in them. It's amazing to be one of the people who gets to help amplify their voice early on. But that doesn't always happen. So sometimes you're waiting a few years because you're a museum and we have 158 year, year history. So we have a little bit of time. Um, but what we're doing when we're out there you know, meeting with artists, and sometimes, of course, they're local artists, too, but meeting with artists around the world um, and looking at their shows and, and talking to them is thinking about not just what they're making that's so fascinating or, or could really um, say something to us and to our audiences and, and find a place in the history of art, but we're also always thinking about how that relates back to that collection I was talking about. So every acquisition you make in many ways um, has an inevitable future relationship with that existing collection. So once we bring an artist into the family at the Albright Knox, we, we bring their work in, um, they're going to be living alongside the, a painting like the, you know, Jackson Pollock or the, um, you know, the Marvelous Sauce. So how do those, how do those conversations play out across history is something that we definitely think about and we take a, a great responsibility in when we decide to add something to the permanent collection. Well, you said a lot there. Kathleen, but I'm, I'm going to try to unpack a little bit. When you, you said earlier that you, um, you're the caretaker of our collection, so to speak. How can you possibly learn about some 8,000 pieces, and, and what did it take for you to gain a real understanding of what the collection was once you got here? Oh, I would not pretend to be able to know about all 8,000 works. I wish that I could. Um, we have a team of curators and a team of experts at the museum, and then we also do rely on other people on the staff, other you know board members, people in the community who have been here far longer than I have. Um, and there, oh, we have a wonderful archivist, for example, um, Gabrielle Carlo, whose expertise is constantly invaluable. Um, but uh, you know, we can't know everything all at once. So you study as a, as a curator. You go to school, like I mentioned, for a long time. Usually, um, you study the history of art. And in studying, you're constantly looking. So you're, you're amassing just sort of in your head. Um, you have the privilege to take that time in school to amass a real, um, not a Rolodex, but you have, you have sort of a, a deep memory of certain periods. And it's, it's why people tend to focus. You don't, you don't typically get curators who are experts in 300 years of art. You know? So I'm just an expert really in... 19th, 20th, and 21st century. Um, and then within that, there are certain periods that I know better. So what you don't know, you go and find people who do, even within our own collection. So there are colleagues that I turn to, our curator for the collection, Holly Hughes, who's been at the museum for more than 20 years, obviously turn to her all the time. We turn to our brilliant registrars, who are the ones who um, kind of oversee the ins, the handling of those artworks, um, the, the way that they come into the building and leave the building. Um, we seek out expertise when we don't have it. We ask questions, like you do. You know, this is um, it's most interesting to me because from that collection, then you as chief curator have to figure out what 
kind of show will be interesting to the public and our members and, 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 and also be, I guess, helpful in the education process of our community. And the reason why I, I'm going to ask you about how you do that in just a second, but um, one of the things that always impresses me is, is the vast wealth of institutional resources we have in this community and really to some extent how undervalued we locally see them. Um, but how others outside of our community see them as being extraordinarily valuable, particularly our collection at the at the Albright Knox. But as you look at that collection and you ask yourself, well, gee, what's going to be of interest to people in March or April or June or July, whatever the month is? How do you go about planning that? You must obviously you've got a team, as you mentioned, but it must be extremely difficult when you've got all these product to choose from. And then from time to time, we actually have a product from other museums, so uh, works from other museums. So how do you go about that? Sure. So there's there's kind of two key um, engines that are always rolling along once once a museum is open. And as you know, we're currently, you know, primarily closed for construction of our expansion, but we do have a special exhibition um, and community space um, in Nor- at Northland. Um but typically, so if the museum is up and running at full speed, there are two things that are going on, almost like um, alternating current. You're going to have your permanent collection installation, because we are privileged to have this amazing permanent collection. Not every museum is going to do that. Um, you're going to have those permanent collection installations, and then you're going to have your special, ex- special exhibitions. And um, sometimes those special exhibitions can be stories that you really want to tell about the permanent collection, about maybe one artist who's in the permanent collection or a theme they want to draw out from those historical works that go back several hundred years. Um, and other times it's a show that you want to borrow from another museum, you know, whole cloth. Maybe it's showing off something. Uh, you know, we, we borrowed an exhibition that the Brooklyn Museum organized. This was several years ago um, called We Wanted a Revolution, Black Radical Women, um, 1968 to 1977. And, you know, most of the artists in that collection weren't yet represented in our museum's collection. And so part of what was exciting about that show was we were bringing something to the city that um, we hadn't yet been able to offer because those, you know, they're artists in many ways that weren't widely collected by museums when they were making work in the 60s and 70s. And of course, that's something we think about working to remedy a little bit. So that's an example of bringing in a special show that um, was all kind of um, new and filling in a gap. And then at other times, like I said, we're building off of resources in the collection. So I'm working on a a really large-scale exhibition dedicated to one very important artist in our collection whose name is Marisol, um, who was a, a Venezuelan artist. Um, who we, have, we had two really important sculptures of hers in our collection up until a couple years ago. And when she passed away in 2016, she left us her entire estate, wow. which is really extraordinary. We can talk more about that later if you want. But so that's an example. So we have this resource now in the collection of Marisol's work, unique in the whole world. And so we're working on a show. It's going to take years to organize this exhibition, but we're working on planning it, and it'll travel across the country to share that with other museums. Uh, And then in terms of the permanent collection, sorry, I'll um, wrap up quickly, but Mm -hmm. the permanent collection tends to be somewhat more stable than those temporary shows that change like every four months. Um, But we do have the opportunity, like if we were open... And, it, and it's, you know, we're experiencing this pandemic. We might have chosen to pull a few things from our museum's collection and install them that maybe spoke to this historical moment. Um, so we always have the opportunity to be kind of responsive in that installation, too. Now, it's interesting when the planning for the expansion of the museum started years ago. 
Um, obviously, no one had any idea that there'd be a pandemic in our future. Mm. But it was, I would never say a good coincidence, but in some cases, I, in some ways, I guess it is a good coincidence that things happened at the time that they did because it gave us time to, uh, when we couldn't be open anyway, really, for us to get something great done there. But you mentioned the Northland campus. We also had to close that campus for a while. What happened there, and, and what what do you see as the, the over the next roughly what, 18 months or so till we're reopened on Elmwood Avenue? What, what will happen over at Northland, and how, how will you curate uh, that? What, what things will happen there? Because it's a totally different kind of environment, uh, particularly as it affects the art itself. How will you how will you utilize that facility in the in the intervening months? Yeah, you're you're right, Peter. It's a different environment. It's also um, it's, 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 if anyone if you haven't been there yet, it's this absolutely fantastic um, kind of manu- former manufacturing kind of warehouse looking space that um, we worked with the city um, to help kind of renovate and turn into a space we could install art in, but. Um, Normally, our exhibitions as a museum, they're sort of, we're very, very, we have to be, we have to be very, very strict about the kind of climate and humidity, because um, we're looking after these artworks for, you know, for, we're hoping for generations upon generations. At Northland, um, because we can't control the climate and the humidity to that extent, we're working more with um, living artists and borrowing works that they're okay um, will undergo kind of a little bit more strain during that time. So what you're going to see are creative, really, really creative contemporary artists um, who sometimes are working with materials that might not be planned to have, you know, a longevity of 300 years, for example. Um, the current show that just we just reopened, so what happened when we had to close for COVID is that we had a summer show planned. Um, and that we just pushed until next summer. So it ended up not disrupting our plans terribly much. We were really lucky in that regard. Um, but the current show that just opened is dedicated to a former kind of street artist. She had been doing sort of wheat paste posters and graffiti, and she had, she had in, in recent years moved really into the museum space. Her name is Swoon. And it's this remarkable exhibition that, as a theme, is really kind of about healing and coming together. And it was planned before... Um, the pandemic, but the programming that we're developing around it, you know, a lot of it's remote, um, is really encouraging people to think about art uh, as a space for transformation. And I know that a lot of people think about art that way. Um, and uh, Swoon's work, I think, gives us a great opportunity to, to try that, to test that kind of muscle um, of exploring how much art can do, how it can bring people together, even at a distance. So that'll be the first, um, that's the first exhibition. We just reopened it, and um, you can make appointments online. It's a pay-what-you-wish model, so you can come for free if you'd like. Um, you just need to make an appointment so that we can kind of control the number of people in the space. And then um, the next exhibition is organized by another member of our curatorial team. It's called Comunidades Visible, um, the Materiality of Migration. It's about visible, you know, communities, the materiality of migration, and she's looking at um, a group of uh, Latinx, Latin American and Hispanic um, artists from across the United States who all have different backgrounds, immigrant backgrounds. Um, and the, the materials that they're using to kind of reflect those backgrounds is really the subject of the show. That's the next exhibition. And then the shows will rotate every few months um, for the duration of um, for the duration. Yeah. Um, I just got a text. Mirasol is a friend of mine. Bye bye. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but 
I just thought uh, interesting. At least one of our listeners is Funny. acquainted with the artist. <laughs> she's she's not living anymore, alas. But she's an artist who um, she was one of the most celebrated artists of her time in the 1960s. Um, there were lines of I mean, seriously thousands of people would go and see her shows in little galleries in New York City in 1962, 1964. She was on the cover of magazines. Time magazine had her work on the cover more times than I can count. Um, but today, if you ask someone about Marisol, kind of outside of this region and a few other cities, she's not at all a household name, and she should be. Um, so, you know, in Buffalo, she's a friend to a lot of people because people remember her sculpture. Perhaps they remember Baby Girl, which is this kind of large carved wood sculpture of a little toddler turned into sort of a monster because it's almost six feet tall. Um, or The Generals, another one of her sculptures. People in Buffalo know her. Um, in a way that they might not in other cities. Well, we've received uh, this entire collection, which is remarkable. We also, some time ago, received a, a large number of, of uh, works by Clifford Still. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I mean, you know, I brought up Marisol because she's the most recent of these extraordinarily generous gifts um, from an artist. And, you know, we like to say at the Albright Knox that we're a museum that has... Um, a real artist-focused um, sort of mission that we, we, we do really try to listen to artists and build relationships with them. And this, the quest for Marisol is, a, is an amazing example of that. But, you know, the earlier uh, precedent for that, an extraordinary bequest, came from the abstract expressionist painter Clifford Still. Um, our museum, you know, this, these things begin, they almost sound like they begin by happenstance. We bought a painting of his. Many, many museums in the 50s were trying to buy Clifford Still's paintings and he was famously a difficult like a really difficult person um and he didn't like to sell his art which is unusual we think of artists as you know they want to sell the work so they can keep making art and keep their studio going but Clifford still hated to let his paintings go he thought of them almost as his children um and he so he then he didn't like museums very much he called MoMA in New York um that mausoleum on 53rd street um, but we at the Albright Knox, we, our curator um, and our director went to his studio and bought a picture um, and started from there building kind of a friendship with him. Eventually, in the early 60s, we organized his first retrospective, and we really let him have a lot of say in what paintings went into that show. He was an unbelievably sought-after painter and a hugely influential painter on people like Mark Rothko and, and Jackson Pollock, for example, um, and a friend of them. But because he held his work so close, in the years that followed, um, his reputation also wasn't quite what it was in the 50s, except here in Buffalo, because a couple of years after we organized his retrospective, he gave us 31 paintings. So um, we are the second largest repository of his work in the world. The only larger collection of Clifford Still's work is in his own museum, which opened a few years ago in Denver, Colorado. Kathleen, I have to ask you to hold that thought. I want to come back to it. We do have to go to break. We'll be right back with more from our upstairs after these important messages. Welcome to the West End, Buffalo's premier luxury waterfront development in the heart of downtown. Starting at 850000 each townhome-style unit features three bedrooms, three-and-a-half bathrooms, high-end finishes, hardwood floors, soaring ceilings, two-car attached garage, and much more. 
With only 20 units being built, now is the time to make your appointment to view this landmark development from Simonelli Real Estate. For more information, visit westinbuffalo.com or call the exclusive listing agent, Deacon Tasker, with Hunt Real Estate at 280-7787. Hunt has been serving your real estate services needs since 1911. In all that time, Hunt has never lost their commitment to this community, and nothing, including our current challenges, will change that commitment. Hunt will face the challenges as they always have with you together. Through the power of state of the art technology, they're able to remain open for business at Hunt Mortgage. Call 633-3700 and any of Hunt's mortgage professionals can assist you. Hunt Mortgage is a licensed mortgage banker. NMLS 37405. New York Department of Financial Services and an equal opportunity lender. Welcome back to our house. This is Peter Hunt and the show is brought to you by the always updated huntrealestate.com where everything is truly easier for your real estate and home ownership experience. Huntrealestate.com is the only place on the web where you can find a complete inventory of homes available not just here in Buffalo, Niagara, but all across the markets we serve. And you'll also find access to a complete set of home ownership services at huntrealestate.com, which is powered by Hunt Real Estate ERA. The show is also brought to you by Hunt Mortgage. And for more information about our many exclusive programs, including the one that allows you to roll the cost of home improvements into your mortgage, allowing you to effectively buy the before and live the after. Call 633-3700 and ask for details. And ask for about that pre-purchase commitment that I mentioned earlier and also about the Second Look program. This is perhaps the most valuable thing you can you can do. If you've already been pre-approved or have a qualification from another lender, let us take a look at it. We're going to take that second look, and if we can't beat it, you'll get a gift certificate. It's as easy as that. No obligation, no risk, zero cost, no problem whatsoever, call 633-3700 and get a second look that could save you a lot of money. If you'd like to just pick up the phone and call us about anything relative to real estate, call the Hunt Customer Service Center at 633-9400 and we'll try to answer your question right there or direct you to the appropriate professional for whatever it is you may need, whether you're considering buying or selling a home, financing a home, insuring a home, or even fixing up the one you have. And remember, our guarantee stands. We will sell your home or ER will buy it. No stronger guarantee in the industry. That's a seller security plan available only through a Hunt Real Estate ERA sales professional. We're live remote today, respecting social distance, with Kathleen Chaffee, who is the chief curator at the Albright Knox Art Gallery here in Buffalo, New York. We've been talking about really kind of the astounding and extremely difficult job it is taking a collection of the size and quality of the Albright Knoxes and bringing uh, what small percentage of it that we can display at any one point time out to the public and that's that's Kathleen's job fundamentally we were talking about Clifford still before the before the break Kathleen and we could talk about him all day but mm-hmm. so we've got the 31 works and I know we we try to display some some of his stuff all the time don't we that's part of the permanent collection we display is it not yes exactly so um you know, we can't up until up until the the new when the new building reopens when we when we reopen in 2022 is the Buffalo Albright Knox Mock Art Gallery. We plan to um, we plan to always have a gallery dedicated to Clifford Still as part of that building, and it's you know, it's a celebration of what's special about this collection, and it's also a celebration of his generosity. So we have 33 of his paintings because we bought two, and he gave us 31. And um, there's really no other institution that has that kind of depth, so we want to celebrate it. And then we also want to do the kind of same thing with Marisol. Um, probably we'll have quite a few of her works on view when we reopen, and then a gallery dedicated to them, um, probably after the retrospective exhibition. 
There's two other main topics I'd like to have you explore with us for a couple minutes here, Kathleen, if you would. First of all, the building itself. Um, where are we in the project? And before you answer that, I, I want our listeners to know, the first time, those that are religious listeners of the show, um, way back when, when this <clears throat> project was first announced, maybe five years ago, I had Yane Siren, uh, our director on, on the show, and we were talking about um, how much money was needed, and this is this is kind of funny. Our, our budget at that point was $80 million, and there were four buckets from where that money would come from. I don't want to bore you with all those details, but uh, Yanni very eloquently described that, well, of course, projects get going, and, and, and now it's a, it's a much different project and, and obviously much more expensive project. So where are we right now, Kathleen? Well, in, in terms of the building, if anybody has driven down Elmwood Avenue, what you see is a, is a big hole in the ground, um, which, you know, it doesn't look like too much right now. But to those of us who've been really involved in the building project, it's it's an exciting site. So what you kind of see as you go by is the beginning of what's going to be the new underground parking lot. Um, and because of that underground parking lot, we're adding back um, about a half an acre of green space above that parking lot that's going to be kind of a new park in front of the museum. We are really well through all the construction planning and work on putting up the new building is going to begin soon. Renovating the work on the renovation of the 1905 building is already underway. You can see workers on the roof of that building. Um, That kind of really important infrastructure work is going on. And then renovation of the 1962 building, which is going to become the Knox family building, um, just as the kind of Beaux-Arts 1905 building is going to be named the um, Bob and Elizabeth Wilmers building. Um, that work is, is w- would begin shortly as well. So we're uh, not completely on schedule, of course. So like this fall, we're going to pour concrete. Steel is probably going to be going up late winter. Um, but, you know, we're, we're a few months behind. I think everybody knows that we were closed um, our, our construction sites across the region were closed down in the early months of the pandemic. Um, so we lost a little bit of time there, but we're surprisingly really pleased with how close we're hewing to our original schedule of still reopening in 2022. That's an exciting opportunity, I think, for, for our city. And one of the things that um, being in the real estate business um, that amazes me is, is how much investment it, it takes to to take a building like that and also create a, create an environment that is suitable for for the collection that we're so fortunate to have in this city how much of our how much of our collection will be will we be able to display when we're done with the building and what will we do with northland after that sure so um, as so the the, the new campus is going to have sort of three nodes you're going to have the Knox Family Building, which will have renewed classrooms and education spaces, as well as this completely free um, indoor town square that's going to actually have a new entrance onto White Lake. So people can walk straight through that building for free, buy a coffee, and there'll be a small, not that small, actually, there'll be a, a gallery um, that you can access in that building completely for free without crossing into the kind of admission zone. And then the Bob and Elizabeth Wilmers Building, that Beaux-Arts Building, is going to be dedicated to the permanent collection for the um, for in a new in a really really new reinstallation of that collection. So, what we're planning is a chronological story of the history of modernism and um, you know going back to its roots really in the seven, late 1700s, 1800s, 
And that building, you know, space, there's limitations of space. It'll probably take us through the 50s, the 1950s, maybe the 1960s in that building. So that building is going to have those Clifford Stills, those Jackson Pollocks, but also the Picassos and the Matisses, um, those earlier 20th century favorites. So and then and then that building will be connected by a beautiful bridge to the brand new building, the Gunlock building, that glass um, encased building designed by OMA uh, Shohei Shigematsu. And then that the permanent collection will continue on one floor of that building, kind of on the same plane. So you'll be able to walk really from the 1700s straight through until work that we acquired literally last month and is going to be on view for the first time in that building. And then the other two floors of that building will be dedicated to changing special exhibitions. Um, and then there's also an amazing kind of sculpture terrace that's indoors on that new building that's going to give views onto White Lake and also let us rotate more of the permanent collection there. In the end, the new campus, if anyone um, listening has been to New York uh, to visit maybe the, the Whitney Museum since it was renovated, the, not renovated since they built a whole new building um, downtown at the Whitney, we have about the same number of square feet um, as that building does which is a lot. And if you've been in there, you know, that's what we're going to end up with. So we should have about twice as much space to show our permanent collection. I couldn't tell you, Peter, in the end, what the percentage will be. Um, quite a lot of our collection, and maybe maybe you've noticed this, is big. You know, as the mm-hmm. artists get more contemporary, they, 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 you know, from the 50s on, they like to make things sometimes that are minuscule, but more often they like to take up space. So um, percentages won't be the most telling part, but I think how much of that story we're able to tell is going to be the most important thing. So what's exciting for us really is going to be to have that sort of stability, the permanent collection that, you know, like I said, will change in response to what's going on or loans going out, but it's going to remain relatively stable. And then you have those special exhibitions constantly coming in and changing and providing a lot of new, um, new interest. Um, and then in terms of Northland, we don't, you know, we're really what we're, what we're working on right now is planning the next couple of years, and then we're looking forward to working with the partnerships that we've built in that community to plan what the future of it is going to be. Um, there's a lot of conversations going on, but I have to say a lot of that has also um, really been focused on the immediate moment because it feels like a very important time to have that space reopen and reactivated with programming. Some of it, you know, in person, socially distanced. We did programs this summer with art making in the parking lot. um, And we're planning more programs like that. Uh, If you look at our website, there's uh, an incredible amount actually going on over at Northland. And that's been our main focus these past few months, as you can imagine. You you know, you touched on just the sheer size of some of the works. And, And also there's another thing that has always amazed me, particularly in, in recent years, and that's the use of technology. It must put an incredible strain on you as a as a curator to try to figure out how to display some of the works that we have and uh, multimedia, the the um, lighting, um, and the various ways that technology is employed. How 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 do you do that? And and how do you how do you take a piece and, and make it fit in with, with the rest of our collection? Or maybe it just doesn't. It has to be off by itself. Sure. I mean, it depends. What you're describing is the, as uh, difficult is for us as curators, it's in many ways the fun part. Like, we spend so much of our time reading books, doing research, as I said, traveling and meeting with artists. But it's usually only a few weeks 
um, you know, every few months where we actually get to be hands-on planning exactly how these puzzle pieces fit together in a gallery. And I mean, that's the part we really look forward to. You're just problem solving. And you, you know, what you do is you, if the artist is alive, you talk to the artist and you look at the, tech, the technology that their work, you know, comes with and you try to figure out how to make it fit. Sometimes, as you mentioned, a work has to be off on its own that uses technology because if it's got sound, for example, you don't want to bombard people who are trying to look at, um, you know, a Mark Bradford painting with the sound from a video piece that's in the next room. So you develop new ideas for sound installation. Um, Where things get really fun is technology from an artist who made a video or made an interactive technology piece 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Um, it's one thing when it's new and you can still go to the, um, you know, Best Buy and get a replacement part or order something online. When you go back 20 and 30 years, everyone at the time always thinks that whatever technology they're using is going to be around forever. And it is never, <laughs> as anybody knows, if you look at all the old computers that you've worked your way through, or your old cell phones, it never lasts forever. So we kind of, we, we stockpile some old technology to make old pieces work. And then we develop, we have, a, we have a, a plan for migrating the kind of media works you're talking about and making sure that they can be migrated to new platforms before their old, you know, kind of quote-unquote operating systems or their old technology becomes impossible to get or impossible to work anymore. Kathleen, we have to go to break. We'll be right back with more from our host years after these very important messages. Hunt has been serving your real estate services needs since 1911. In all that time, Hunt has never lost their commitment to this community, and nothing, including our current challenges, will change that commitment. Hunt will face the challenges as they always have with you together. Through the power of -of state-of-the-art technology, they're able to remain open for business at Hunt Mortgage. Call 633-3700, and any of Hunt's mortgage professionals can assist you. Hunt Mortgage is a licensed mortgage banker. NMLS 37405. New York Department of Financial Services and an equal opportunity lender. Welcome to the West End, Buffalo's premier luxury waterfront development in the heart of downtown. Starting at 850000 each townhome-style unit features three bedrooms, three-and-a-half bathrooms, high-end finishes, hardwood floors, soaring ceilings, two-car-attached garage, and much more. With only 20 units being built, now is the time to make your appointment to view this landmark development from Simonelli Real Estate. For more information, visit westinbuffalo.com or call the exclusive listing agent, Deacon Tasker, with Hunt Real Estate at 280-7787. Welcome back to our house. This is Peter Hunt, and this show is brought to you by the always updated HuntRealEstate.com, where everything is truly easier for your real estate and home ownership experience. The show is also brought to you by Hunt Mortgage, NMLS number 37405, an equal opportunity lender, and you can reach them at 633-3700. I'm live remote this morning with Kathleen Chaffee, who is the chief curator of the Albright Knox Art Gallery, soon to be the Albright Knox Gunlock Art Museum. I believe that's the right name. Is that right, Kathleen? Did I get that right? Buffalo Albright Knox Gunlock or Buffalo AKG Art Museum, exactly. Okay, great. So a few more words, but I'll get it right. (laughs) Anyway, um, you you were talking about um, how how technology changes, and obviously artists are working in various media, and and one of them is, is... tied into technology or one of those, I should say several, and it, it's difficult, how difficult it is to keep up with, um, keep them alive, I guess, so that you can 
show them five years from now or 10 years from now. So I imagine storage of that stuff is, is almost impossible. How, how do you, you said you, you do store some things so that you can keep it working right. How, how do you do that? I mean, there must be some uh, very sophisticated way that we, all these things are cataloged and then, and then kept track of. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, it's, it's a challenge that every museum faced, and it, you know, it began in the in the 60s, really, and it's continued to this day. Any museum that collects contemporary art ends up grappling with um, technology, and just like in the in the 30s and 40s, artists started using things like car enamel paint in their work or um, magic markers, and none of those are really made to for longevity. So museums struggle to deal with conservation and the longevity of those materials. Just like that, we have to deal with technology in the same way. So we do have uh, a great database that helps us keep track of works. And then we have a dedicated server where we, um, it's like a protected, sort of a very protected server where we house media works. And then we keep, we keep a copy, sort of a, almost like a, you know, a, a jump drive or a hard drive or a CD-ROM or whatever the kind of original media the work came on. We keep that too. Um, and we protect it in the right climate conditions and things like that. But then we also have um, we also have an inventory of technology, some of which is what you wouldn't want in your house. It's way too obsolete, but we still need it to run certain works of art. You know, our mission on this show, Kathleen, is to help our listeners protect and enhance their investment in real estate um, here in our community and anywhere they may choose. Obviously, we want them to choose here. And I've always argued, as I mentioned earlier, that the institutional investment that our community makes, um, the investment institution, such as the Albright Knox, adds greatly to the value of the real estate all around us, which which I believe it does. Part of that is the connection between the gallery and the community. And you'd mentioned our educational system um, a little earlier that that is, exists at the gallery and how we've, you, we've utilized Northland, for example, during the pandemic months and across the summer for to engage to engage the, the community around us. How else are we going to be doing that and how will the new campus help us to do all that? It's, I'm so glad you asked that because it's, it's, you know, many people today, we talk about what our new name is going to be at the museum, but, you know, our original name is the Buffalo Fine Arts Academy. Um, and that's still kind of our, 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 um, our, it's our official name. As it were. It's our official name, exactly. And within that is that's not just the name, that's a clue. You know, we were founded by artists who had an educational mission. They believed that art um, could be transformational. And they believed that looking at not just any art, but the art being made now, art of our time, and our time is always shifting backwards because our museum is almost 160 years old, um, that art of our time had a key to helping us see ourselves differently learn about the human condition in the here and now um, and give us sometimes a respite from what's going on in the here and now as well. So that, that mission has been absolutely core to what we've done for 160, almost 160 years, 158 years to be precise. Um, so as we were planning what the new museum is going to look like when we reopen, um, those conversations around education have been absolutely integral to what we're doing. So, you know, you have a curator on the phone, so I talk a lot about <laughs> a gallery space and what the walls are going to look like. But for us, you know, without that educational component, it's just an installation that no one sees because, you, you know, you can do as much outreach as you want and get adult visitors who already know a lot about art or are excited about art into the galleries. Um, but unless you have an educational program to get kids excited about art, to bring school groups through, and also to 
invite artists to do talks and do that kind of adult education, then we're not going to be able to grow the knowledge base, you know, here in the community and capitalize on people's excitement, which is also what education programs can really do. So in the new building I mentioned, we're going to have the, in the Knox family building, we're going to have new, really state-of-the-art, exceptional classrooms like we've never had before um, that will enable some of that new kind of media work that you mentioned earlier, Peter, um, as well as, uh, you know, hands-on making and things like that. So new state-of-the-art classrooms. And then we're going to continue a lot of those um, programs that have become really relied upon in the community. So bringing in school children on with, you know, their buses and with their school groups and providing free tours with docents, trained docents at the museum, um, and then creating art activities that bring those exhibitions, those programs really to life. And another key part of that is going to be that free indoor town square that I mentioned. So that's a space where anybody can come and, you know, plug in their computer and do their homework or, you know, have a coffee. Like it's, it's truly a community space, which is maybe the less uh, obvious part of education. But having a space where people can gather and talk about what they've just seen is, to me, also really, really important. I couldn't agree more. One of the, one of the other aspects of, of the galleries. I guess, activities over the last several months and really years is how art has been taken outdoors. How have you been involved in that and, and what, what's the status of the whole um, mural program, I guess, for lack of a better term? Sure. So we're, the, we're actually the only, this is, maybe people don't know this, we're actually the only, we're the only museum in the entire country that has a public art initiative um, like the one that we have. Our public art initiative, you know, was founded about six years ago, not that long actually after I began at the museum, by our director, um, and we brought on a curator at the time. That, that staff has now grown. There's three full-time staff that work on the public art initiative, and you know they're they're organizing 10, 15 programs out around the entirety of Erie County, and this is this is possible with the support of the County of Erie and the City of Buffalo, as well as obviously support from the museum itself. Um, and it's murals, as you mentioned, Peter, but it's also temporary installations of public sculpture. You know, some people might have seen the the great um, Robert and Deanna numbers on the waterfront that were up for more than a year. We, those just came down earlier this year. Um, and we're planning lots more programs like that. You know, during the time of our closure, it became clear that the you know, public art initiative was going to ramp up a little um, and increase the kind of work that they're doing. But um, it's ongoing. It's full of energy. And we're finding it to be a great catalyst for bridging conversations between um, people who might not always come to the museum, but people who love art because they, they love looking at it. So having those conversations about what do you like looking at in your community can help uh, bridge into conversations about the type of art that needs to be in a secure museum space, you know, climate-controlled museum space, um, sort of bridge that. So it shouldn't be that art is only thought of as being between the walls of a museum. It definitely exists beyond that. Well, there's no question about that, which which really goes to um, kind of a last question I have for you, which could go in various directions. But part of this public art program really reflects, in my mind anyway, responsibility that institutions like the Albright Knox have to the entire community as opposed to, like you say, having a bunch of art behind walls, behind closed doors, so to speak. So how, how do you think public art, our education program, um, the transformation of the campus, even Northland, how are they really achieving a kind of a, a social mission for the gallery itself? 
I mean, I think exactly as you're describing it is kind of what's happening. So these are these are different um, different arms of our mission working in coordination with each other. And I have to say, I've been you know been at the museum as I said for six and a half years. This is the time when I'm I think we're really seeing, and as we go into reopening in the next couple of years, we're really going to see those different parts of our mission that are manifest in those different programs you named really come together and, and, and create a kind of a matrix that's unbelievably strong where um, they feed off of each other. So where the programming at the museum is feeding into the kind of work that we're doing with the public art initiative. And obviously the educational programs are feeding into both. Um, and that we're, we're really able to meet people where they are at different levels of interest in the art of our time and have those conversations at many different um, at many different levels. That's I think what's really exciting. Well, I think it is very exciting because it, it's there's so much of our community that <clears throat> can be connected through art, which is a, a kind of a language of its own, as you know probably much better than, certainly than I do. As we look forward in the last couple of minutes here, how, how can our listeners engage with the art gallery at this time beyond, say, going over to Northland? Or what other things could they do to learn more about what's going on and also to hopefully uh, uh, gear up for the reopening of the, ga- of the, of the gallery on Ombud itself? I love that question. I'd like to give everyone everyone has homework from me. You have to you have to read up us. Yeah. Well, give us your homework then. No, no. I would say right now the 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 best thing that people can do is engage with art how they feel comfortable. You know, we we're coming out. I mean, ideally, we're coming out of a period with a, with a lot of concern and discomfort about our health and being around other people. So we're taking extraordinary measures to make the visit to Northland space safe to see that swoon exhibition. So as you said, beyond that, I think have a look at our website. You will be, if you haven't looked yet, you will be really pleasantly surprised with the number of offerings that are in place that are helping to get us through this really trying time. There are great free lectures, programs, uh, there are drink and draw events. There are uh, many, many, many opportunities put together by our education department and, you know, sometimes some of them for members um, that are going to help us, you know, help get us through this year and, and make the fall something that um, can teach us something and not just not just something that we're going to have to survive. Um, and then as we go forward, looking towards the reinstallation, that's going to continue. And you're going to start hearing a lot about the exciting shows and programs that are coming up and the ways that we want to bring those um bring those out to the community as well. Kathleen Chafee, Chief Curator of the Albright Knox Art Gallery, thank you very much for being with us this morning. It's been a very interesting discussion, at least for me, and I certainly hope for our listeners. And I want to remind our listeners that we'll be back again next week at the same time. And remember, when it comes to real estate, all of upstate is hunt country. <laughs>